Welcome to Third Man Walking. Today's topic is one several people have asked me to discuss. Any advice I might have for poker players who'd like to go pro. So this episode is addressed to players like myself who are unexceptional. If you're exceptionally talented, and when I say exceptional, I mean like top 0.01%, or maybe exceptionally driven, or exceptionally well-connected, or already exceptionally wealthy, or exceptionally amoral, there may be lots of paths in poker that will work very well for you. But if, like me, you aren't Matt Damon solving math equations on the MIT chalkboard, there still may be ways for you to pursue poker as a job. So this episode is for people who are beating, say, 1-2 or 1-3 live, or 25 and L online, or who are making four or five big blinds an hour in 2-5, and who are considering their next move. And by the way, if that's not you, that's totally fine. There's obviously no shame whatsoever in playing poker as a hobby, as most players do. And hopefully some of these tips will help you out anyway. Just a caveat, I don't claim to be a great pro. I make mistakes all the time. But cash game poker has been my main source of income since late 2015, and by far my biggest income stream since 2018. And I'm doing okay. So here we go. Here are... 12 tips for aspiring poker pros. Tip one, consider other options. If you are clever enough to make money playing poker, you can probably make even more money doing something else. There are obvious drawbacks to playing poker as opposed to having a more traditional job, like not getting benefits. Any time spent playing poker professionally is also likely to create gaps in your resume that might make it difficult for you to get a traditional job later. By playing poker, you leave money and opportunities on the table. So before making the leap, seriously consider what your other options are and whether the benefits of playing poker for a living, like setting your own hours, not having a boss, and getting to play cards all day, are worth the drawbacks. It's not a trivial decision, especially if you already have lucrative skills. I play poker mostly because the other things I'm good at, like writing music and teaching college classes, have become increasingly precarious since I started doing them. If I were good at, say, coding, I bet I'd still be doing that. So if you're on a career path you absolutely can't stand and you're good at poker, then maybe going pro is something you really should try. But if your job is okay and a life in poker would only be a slight improvement for you if it went well, then consider sticking with your job and playing recreationally. Tip two, be realistic. Is being a pro something that's actually achievable for you, or is it just something you can see if you squint? Can you win enough to make it as a pro in the long term, or are you just running hot? As we've discussed a lot here on Third Man Walking, delusion is a big part of what makes the poker economy go, so make sure you aren't seriously overestimating yourself. You want to be sure you can overcome the variance you'll inevitably face as a pro, and part of that is having a sufficient bankroll. Now, I already addressed the bankroll issue in episode 21, and I stand by what I said there, but I'll also emphasize that a huge, huge part of making sure your bankroll is big enough to play the stakes you want to play is being much better than your opponents. In fact, I almost wanted to say in that episode that the sort of person I'd recommend go pro probably doesn't need bankroll advice from me. So before you quit your job, put in a lot of hours at the table, probably over a period of years, and make sure you really are as good as you think. Tip three. Understand how you think about money. 
As a poker player, you essentially run a small business, and it doesn't matter if you don't think of yourself as a business person. You have to be responsible and smart with money, or playing poker professionally won't work. By far the worst problem you can have, of course, is being too loose with your money, playing in games that are too big, playing pit games where you don't have an edge, spending more than you make, and so on. I think there's also another potential problem, which is not taking enough risk at the poker table, and I'm probably guilty of that. The professional poker player who doesn't take enough risk will likely be able to stay in the game longer than the one who takes way too much, but either way, you're not maximizing your winnings. I think the key is to understand the way you think about money and work to counteract it. If you're too loose with it, set boundaries and budgets for yourself, and think twice about hopping in that big game a couple tables away. If you're too tight with it, that's probably mostly okay, but take some shots and push yourself to make as much as you can. Tip four, and this is a quick one, ask yourself whether you're addicted to gambling. Do you want to play poker all the time because you like poker or because you feel compelled to gamble? If it's the latter, it's probably better not to orient your life around it. Tip five, focus on cash games unless you have good reasons not to. There are really good pros out there who focus on tournaments, but that's a tough path if you aren't incredibly lucky. As a live tournament player, you might go months or years where you aren't making significant money and you'll have enormous travel expenses while you wait for your next big score. The variance in tournaments is huge. Dry spells can be lengthy and the sorts of huge wins that can convince someone to go pro can be illusory. In fact, some of the live tournament pros I used to see in LA just a few years ago, people who seemed to be on top of the world at the time, seem to be mostly gone now. If you wanna play live tournaments for a living, build up a huge bankroll first, or at least build up a bankroll that's merely big, and put in a couple thousand tournaments online to make sure you're good enough. In cash games, you'll find your level much more quickly, and you won't waste years of your life and thousands of miles on your car, puttering from casino to casino, waiting for that six or seven figure score that never arrives. Tip six, learn from other pros, but don't concern yourself too much with their results. As a pro, you should often be the best player at your table. But if you're pushing yourself and taking shots occasionally, you'll sometimes be at the table with people who are better than you. Try to figure out what tricks they're using and how you can integrate them into your own game. When you see a very good player make a raise or a bet sizing you'd rarely use, ask yourself why they might have done it. Also, you don't want to push too hard to ingratiate yourself with other pros, especially at the table, and you don't want your friendships to be too transactional. But having friends who are successful in poker is tremendously useful both because you can discuss hands with them and also because they might be able to provide good life advice. But don't waste too much time evaluating how successful other people are, especially in comparison to yourself. It won't make you feel good and you're not likely to get a clear picture anyway. A tip of the cap again to Rob Farha's podcast, The Grind, which was the first one I'd heard to point this out explicitly. Much of the baller crusher stuff you see in the poker world is fake. A lot of so-called pros are playing on someone else's money. A lot of people who use highfalutin poker terms at the table have no idea what they're talking about. And a lot of people who present themselves as crushers on social media just aren't. Often they're just posting when they've had a good session or a run of positive variants. Often this is pure fakery, but sometimes it's just subtle misrepresentation from people who are trying to be truthful. For example, a recent review of this podcast noted that I just seem to win all the time. I haven't said anything here that isn't true to create that impression, but of course I lose in something like 40% of my sessions. 
It's just that a lot of those big losing days don't make good podcast material. A lot of my bad sessions are like the one I had yesterday, where basically nothing very interesting happened for several hours, and then I lost a $10,000 flip that basically played itself. I'm also less motivated to come home and sculpt my losing sessions into content than I am with the winning ones. It's well known too in the vlogging community that winning makes much better vlogs than losing, and I'm sure it's well known in the Instagram poker community that pictures of big stacks of chips get better engagement than small ones. And by the way, I'm not talking about anyone in particular here. A lot of people will think I'm talking about Mariano due to the timing, but I'm not. I've played with him a bunch, and he plays good, interesting poker. And I think the graph he posted recently is 100% real. I'm just saying in general that if you're comparing yourself to the way other people characterize themselves on the internet or in person, it's sort of like a teenager comparing the way they look to an Instagram personality who's been airbrushed to infinity. So bottom line, learn from other people, but worry about yourself. If your win rate makes it possible to live the life you want, that's all that matters. Comparing yourself to other players who probably aren't telling the whole story anyway won't make you happy. Tip seven, don't be ego-driven. Ego and playing poker for a living mix very poorly. Often, poker players are attracted to the game because they're competitive, but there's a fine line between believing in yourself and wanting to win and believing that you're the best and feeling like you have to prove it. Too much ego can lead you to play too many hands and put yourself in bad spots because you aren't as good as you think. Ultra-loose aggressive players like Garrett Adelstein and Tom Dwan get lots of praise, as they should. Those guys are towering figures who've gotten to play so loose because they genuinely are much better than their opponents. But I've seen many, many more players come to my games and try to play like Garrett or Dwan, and they never stick around long because their skill edge isn't nearly as big as they think. Too much ego can also lead you to take shots in games or tournaments where you don't have an edge. It can cause you to miss opportunities to get better because you already believe your strategy is good enough. There's a lot of uncertainty in poker, and the other extreme from having too much ego is bad too. You don't want to completely change your strategy in a downswing because you don't trust yourself. But in my experience, players who are open to the idea that they're wrong about things and who know their limitations are the ones who stand the best chance of succeeding long-term. Tip eight, work hard. Sometimes I think about the fact that there aren't very many good 60-year-old poker players. As I discussed on the first season of Third Man Walking, I think that's due to a complex series of factors that's related to the history of poker as a cultural phenomenon. The poker boom that began 18 years ago led to the development of software and of ways of thinking about the game that people who are now 60 mostly didn't figure out because they were already middle-aged with jobs and responsibilities by the time those tools arrived. In the next 20 years, players will continue getting better at poker, but as a community, will improve much more slowly than we did a decade ago because we've already figured a lot of important stuff out. I don't think there's any reason someone who's 60 in 20 or 30 years couldn't still be good at No Limit Hold'em by then. But maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe poker is just a difficult enough game cognitively, especially as it gets tougher, that today's pros won't be able to ride it out. Or maybe all the action will move from No Limit Hold'em to PLO or bomb pots or short deck or some other poker variant that hasn't yet been invented and we'll have to scramble to keep up. My point is that we have a limited amount of time to make money here. And if that's the case, we should push ourselves to put in a lot of hours playing and a lot of hours studying. Make the most of your time. I bet there are lots of pros who played lax schedules in 2008 or 2012 when the games were much better than they are now who wish they'd done more.
Tip nine, learn about money. When you have a regular job, you get regular paychecks with money withheld for taxes and probably also for retirement. In poker, you don't get regular checks and for your taxes and retirement, you're on your own. So first, you wanna make sure that you have enough money available that you can withstand a few bad months or maybe even a bad year if you have to. Second, you wanna make sure that you have enough money that you can retire or at least have a cushion in case you wanna stop playing poker and move into some other profession. I'm not a financial advisor and I don't even really know what I'm talking about, but I recommend opening an account somewhere like Vanguard. There you can open IRAs and solo 401ks, which are tax advantaged as part of your retirement savings. You don't even have to learn much about the stock market if you don't want to. You can just put your money in basic mutual funds like the Vanguard 500. Of course, many poker players are also interested in cryptocurrency, and it seems okay to me at this point in time to have some money in crypto as well. And again, I'm not a financial advisor. Just keep in mind that there's a lot more volatility month to month with crypto than with traditional investments, and you want to make sure you basically understand any risks you're taking. Either way, the point is to get your money into the markets and have it work for you. Also, I strongly advise paying your taxes. As I've mentioned before, a lot of poker players don't. I do, and maybe that makes me a fish somehow, but I can move money wherever I want and not worry about leaving a trail that makes the government come after me later. An accountant can help you, and you're probably going to pay less than you think. And a final bit of advice about money, don't loan it to people. Poker players run the gamut from really nice and upstanding to really scummy, and it can be hard to tell who's who sometimes. They also lend each other money a lot, and there are a million stories about people getting scammed. So try not to have financial arrangements with anyone you don't thoroughly trust, and even if you do trust them, be careful. Tip 10. Build a lifestyle that's sustainable for you. Many of the most profitable hours you can play in poker are on weekends or late at night, and many players share a tendency to chase losses by playing long sessions when they're stuck. I'm definitely not above playing at night or chasing losses from time to time, but as you transition from playing recreationally to playing professionally, it's worth thinking about how much of that you're willing to do. Maybe the answer is a lot. I'm a night person and I'm able to be productive the next day after playing a 12-hour session until 5 in the morning, but maybe it isn't. Since I moved from Ohio to Los Angeles a few years ago, I've transitioned from playing mostly nights, which is kind of what you had to do in Ohio, to mostly playing days. I leave home around 10 after the morning rush and leave the casino around 7. I'm sure my hourly earn suffers a bit, but there's a line between the time I spend playing poker and the time I spend at home, and this schedule is conducive to my having a relationship and friends. That's not to say that you have to do the same thing, but your quality of life is worth thinking about, and it's worth considering giving up a little bit of your edge at the table so you can sleep properly or eat well or exercise. Part of what will make your lifestyle sustainable also is controlling tilt. You're going to have bad days and bad weeks in poker, and if you let those linger after you leave the casino, that affects your quality of life too. That's something I've had to work on a lot over the past several years. So try to find a way to be happy or at least somewhat happy, even when things aren't going so well at the table. Tip 11, be open to side revenue streams. It's 2022. Many working people can no longer rely on a nine to five job that has benefits and a pension. And maybe that's mostly a bad thing, but it also feels like a time when there are lots of opportunities for people who already have flexible schedules to develop interesting side hustles. Now, some poker side hustles are illegal, and many players have turned to the shadowy world of hosting home games or private app games, which I don't advise. 
but lots of players are making vlogs and podcasts, and I've known others who've created their own apparel businesses. Some also work as hosts or props at casinos. If you play poker professionally, you probably want to make that your focus. But if there are ways to turn your connection to poker into a few extra dollars, that seems like it can only help. Tip 12, keep your eye on the exit. Like I said, you don't know how long you're going to be able to keep playing professionally, and you also don't know how long you're going to want to. Many pros grow to resent poker as it becomes more of a job than a hobby. Once they decide they're done, it's important to have something to transition to. This might be where your side revenue stream comes in, or perhaps you could take some classes or use poker to network your way into something new. It is January 2nd, uh, but these are some notes I took on a 510 session I played a few weeks ago. And I'm going to be tangling with a couple of European players, that is a couple of European professionals, in this session. And we're going to play some bigger and bigger pots as the day goes on. In this first one, I have a stack of about $1,500, which is the cap for this game. And the low jack, who is a young player who I don't know and who I assume is a recreational player, raises to $30. The button, who is a fun player, calls. And I have king jack of hearts in the small blind. Now, this is a hand I want to play, but my read on the low jack, who had not been open raising a lot, in the sample I played against him was that his raise was probably not super light. So if the preflop raiser were a pro, I would probably squeeze here. But given what I know about the preflop raiser, which admittedly isn't much, I'm going to call instead. So I do, and the big blind calls as well. So we're going four ways to a flop. There's 115 in the pot and it comes eight, six, four with the eight and six of hearts. It checks to the preflop raiser in the low jack who bets $40. The button fun player calls and now it's on me. Now, I think that eight, six, four is not a board that is going to interact all that well with the preflop raisers range. He can certainly have strong preflop hands here like aces. And of course, he can also have pocket eights and pocket sixes, you know, very strong hands like that. But I rule those out somewhat based on the fact that he's betting barely over a third of the pot on a wet board with a fun player to act behind him. Personally, if I were going to bet in his situation, I would bet bigger. So that makes me lean toward raising rather than calling here. I have a pretty strong hand with a flush draw and overs with my king jack of hearts, but it still is just king high. And if I can get some folds now, that's great. So I raise to $200, the big blind folds, the preflop raiser calls and the button folds. So now there's $555 in the pot heading to the turn. We're heads up now. And it's the five of diamonds creating a backdoor diamond draw. So now the board is eight, six, four, five with two hearts and two diamonds. And again, I have King Jack of hearts. So if I had a set here, I would definitely bet because I don't expect my opponent to have that much seven X. 
He could have eight, seven suited, pocket sevens, seven, six suited. He can have some of those hands, but as a percentage of his range, I don't think it's much. So, you know, one problem for me maybe is that I don't have much seven X here either, but I don't know if my opponent knows that. I don't know if my opponent, I suspect he doesn't know that in fact, that I would not call out of the small blind here with seven, six suited or eight, seven suited probably. Um, I would mostly be calling with pairs, hands like eights, sixes, and then also suited Broadway hands. So I think a lot of what my opponent has in his range is over pairs. And I think this is actually one of those boards where if your opponent has a pulse at all, they're going to have to strongly consider folding over pairs. I also think betting any reasonable size here on the turn sends the message at $1,500 effective to start the hand that the rest of my stack could be going in on the river. So I bet $310 into 555 Not a huge bet in terms of the size of the pot, but one that I think pretty effectively conveys the message that, hey, on the river, the money's probably going in. So decide now. Uh, and fortunately, my opponent does find the fold. So I get a pretty nice semi-bluff through. In this next hand, uh, a European player who I don't know very well raises to $30 in the under-the-gun one seat. Middle position and button both call, and both these players are fun players, uh, players who, who, are, who the action is revolving around. And I'm in the big blind with king seven of hearts and make the call. So we're going four ways to this flop here as well. There's about 120 in the pot and it comes king seven five rainbow. So I flop top two pair. I check it over to the preflop raiser and uh, unfortunately uh, it would appear he checks and so do the other two players. So still $120 in the pot heading to the turn, which is the six of hearts. So now king, seven, five, six, and now there are two hearts out there. So I have a flush draw to go with my top two pair. I bet $75 here. The pro calls, middle position calls, and the button folds. So now we're going three ways to a river. There's $345 in the pot and it's an offsuit queen. So now king, seven, five, six, queen, my heart draw has bricked, but I still have two pair with king seven of hearts. So I elect to bet here and I, I bet $250, which I think is a little bit big. I'm hoping that the pro has something like king 10 suited that elected to check flop. I don't think he has king queen very much. So I'm not super worried about being behind. Maybe he could have pocket queens here but I think I'm ahead of him the vast majority of the time and I'm targeting probably weak-ish top pairs like King 10 and King 9 suited. And the middle position player shouldn't be especially strong here either because he also had the chance to bet on the flop and didn't take it. So I'm hoping to get a call from some type of one pair hand he might have, or maybe if I'm very lucky, he has something like 7-6 or 6-5. Uh, but I bet 250 into 345. The pro calls and the other player folds. And I'm quite surprised by what I see at showdown, which is that the pro has pocket kings. 
So he flop top set had me drawing almost dead. Uh, well, or would have had me drawing almost dead had it not been for the flush draw on the turn and just had me in complete jail on the flop and really saved me a lot of money by checking. And, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't, maybe this guy's a really good online player or something, but if I'm him on the flop with two fun players in the hand, I am for sure betting pocket Kings, knowing that I can get called by all kinds of pairs that these fun players might have, as well as by any kind of straight draw they might have, or that I might have like nine, eight or eight, six or six, four. And I think actually the reason why he doesn't raise on the river is that he fears that I can have nine, eight, which I certainly would because on King seven, five, six, when the flop gets checked around, I'm in the big blind and have lots of potential straights in my range, uh, that pocket Kings has to worry about. So I think heads up, there might be reason to check pocket Kings in certain situations on a board of King seven, five rainbow, but multi-way, I would just probably not ever do it. And the fact that he did it here ends up saving me a bunch of money. In this next hand, there's a straddle on the low Jack raises to $60. And this is a different European pro. There are two calls and I have pocket Kings in the big blind. That is the second blind and re-raise to $380. It folds to the preflop razor who is the European pro, actually a Spanish pro, and he calls the other players fold. So there's $900 in the pot and the flop comes 654 rainbow. Generally not the kind of flop you want to see when you have pocket Kings, but I'm not overly worried about it for a couple of reasons. One is that there's $900 already in this pot and I only have about $1,800 back at this point. So we would say the stack to pot ratio here is two to one, which if you have an overpair and the stack to pot ratio is two to one, you generally don't care too much about anything and just want to get the money in. And the other thing is that when my opponent calls $380 preflop, he really doesn't have much that directly connects with this board. He doesn't have hands like eight, seven suited. He probably doesn't have hands like pocket sixes. Instead, what he has is other good over pairs or hands like ace king. So jacks, tens, nines, ace king, ace queen suited, hands like that. So for those reasons, I'm not too concerned here and bet $500 into 900 and my opponent makes the call. So now there's $1,900 in the pot heading to the turn, which comes the three of spades creating a backdoor spade draw. So now six, five, four, three with two spades. And again, I'm not too concerned about this. I don't expect my opponent to have any hand really that has a seven in it. And I know that he probably doesn't think I have a seven in my hand either. That's just generally not the level the hand is on. Um, and also I only have $1,300 in my stack and there's about $1,900 in the pot. So I go all in here and he tanks for quite a while before folding he would say that he made a big fold, which I take to mean that he has a hand like jacks or tens. So I'm quite deep now and remain so for this last big hand of the night. And we can see that the pots keep getting bigger and bigger, playing with the straddle more and more. 
and there's a straddle to $20 on this hand, and I have queen 10 of spades under the gun plus one and raised to $60. The cutoff calls and so does the straddle. So there's $190 in the pot heading to the flop, which comes jack nine four with the jack and nine of spades. So I've got a monster draw here with my queen 10 of spades, an open-ended straight flush draw, and I bet $75 and both my opponents call. So we're headed to a turn here. There's $415 in the pot. Again, I have queen 10 of spades and the turn is the eight of spades. So I make a straight flush here, jack nine, four, eight, with the jack nine and eight of spades with my queen 10 of spades. You'll love to see it. And even better is that the straddle now leads for $300 into $415. So this is an amazing spot. This guy is saying that he has something really strong and we're $3,300 deep at this point. So I think I definitely want to raise when I have a hand like a straight flush. I don't prevent my opponent from having say the ace high flush. And you know, if he does have the ace high flush, I definitely want to make sure that all the money gets in on the river. I mean, if he, if he has any hand, I want to make sure all the money gets in on the river. So I raised to $850, which is a pretty small sizing, but kind of one that's, that's sort of saying, Hey, you know, I can raise to this size and potentially fold if you shove. So, you know, if you want to shove, you know, go ahead. The cutoff folds and now it's back on the straddle who does ship his stack in. And of course I call right away. I table my hand and uh, he shows the ace of spades and mucks. So I'm not sure if he had something like, you know, ace 10 with the ace of spades and decided to make a move on this particular turn, or if he actually did have the ace high flush, but either way, uh, an amazing end to the session. I win a massive pot with a straight flush and that's pretty rare. Actually, the same opponent made a royal flush against me when I have top two pair about 10 days before this. So I end up getting revenge here in a big way. And uh, I'm quite excited. Uh, does not happen often that you make a two card straight flush in live poker. The last significant pot like that I can think of was in a tournament where I flopped a royal flush. And even then it wasn't that big a deal because you're only playing with so many big blinds. Here we're hundreds of big blinds deep and I'm able to get all of it into the middle and win a pot of a little over $7,000. So at the end of the day, I rack up with a profit of about $4,700, a pretty great day. And uh, yeah, you know, guilty. Another session here that I took notes on um, that ended up going really well. So maybe for the next episode, I will try to take notes on a session where that doesn't happen, but uh, happy to get to share that straight flush hand with you. Thanks for listening to Third Man Walking. You can find me on Twitter at Third Walking or send me an email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you.